right, we're going to go ahead and dive in and get started as our host team continues to, uh, to pass the offering bucket. So if you will, grab your Bibles if you have one. Go to Luke 24 with me. Or if you have a device with a version Bible app on it, you can turn your Bibles on. Go to Luke 24 with me. And uh, as you're finding your way there, I want to ask you a simple question. I want you to think about how you'd answer this question. And uh, here's the question. If you could change one thing about your life, what would that one thing be? If you could change one thing about your life, what would that one thing be? This past week, I actually Googled that question. I was really interested as to what Internet Land had to say in response to that question. And so um, I read several different websites on which people had talked about what they wish could be different about their lives. And the interesting thing to me was this. It didn't matter what website I visited, the responses seemed to all be the same. There were tons of people who wrote that they wished that they could change things such as anxiety, depression, worry, lack of confidence, issues with self-esteem. Um, there were a lot of people who wrote and said that they wish they could change certain addictions they've dealt with. Uh, they wish they could change relationships that, that either had fallen apart or were falling apart. And a lot of people actually said they would change certain things about their physical health. Now, as I read these responses, something started to become really clear to me because they weren't just one-word responses. These people kind of unpacked why they were feeling the way they were feeling. So here's what became clear. As I read, I started to really understand that these people never, as they wrote, were under the impression that what they so desperately wanted to be different could ever be different. Right? It almost seemed that they were riding with, with this sense of hopelessness. I really want this thing to change, but I don't know if it can, and I don't know if it ever will. Now, maybe you're somebody here in the room tonight that you can totally identify with what that feels like. As I ask you that question, what do you want to change? That thing that kind of rushed into your mind, you're thinking about it, you're kind of wrestling with it right now, and even in your mind, you're questioning Will this thing ever change for me? Because if you were honest, it almost seems too big for you. And you kind of, in a lot of ways, when, when you think about it, you kind of feel hopeless, you kind of feel lost. And even though you want whatever that thing is to be different, you just don't know if it's possible. Well, listen, if that's you in the room tonight, here's what I want to say to you. Because of what we're here to celebrate, which is the resurrection of Jesus, there is hope to be found. Like you understand that your life can be different. You can be made into a new person who doesn't get out of bed every day wondering if life is just going to be the same old life for you. You can actually, because Jesus is alive, be made into a person that knows joy, that knows hope, that knows a changed life. And, and to show you how and why that's true, we're going to dive into a story tonight from Luke 24 in, in which two men, they have this encounter with the resurrected Jesus but still they're unsure if anything about life is ever going to change for them. So we're going to dive in. If you have a Bible to verse 13, if, if you didn't bring anything with you tonight, then you can feel free to follow along with me up on the screens as we read through this. All right, so start with me, verse 13. The Bible says, That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. Now, here's what's going on. Let me stop here before we keep reading. Two guys, they were followers of Jesus while he was alive. They've left Jerusalem, and they're walking back to a town called Emmaus. 
And as they're walking, they're talking about some very things that had happened that morning. And what had happened that morning is this. Jesus rose from the dead. It's Resurrection Sunday. And some women that these guys knew, they had gone to the tomb of Jesus And they were going there to preserve his body with some spices. But when they got there, Jesus was nowhere to be found. All that was waiting on them was a group of angels to tell these ladies, Hey, uh, Jesus, he rose from the dead just like he told you he would. And so these ladies, they run back to the other friends of Jesus and they tell them what's going on. And, And the friends of Jesus think these ladies have absolutely lost their mind and so these two men, they're, they're walking together, talking about all, the, all that stuff that, that had happened. Now keep reading with me. I'll just see what happens next. Verse 15. The Bible says, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and he went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what's this conversation you're holding with each other as you walk? And I love this scene. The Bible says they, they stood still, looking sad. You can almost imagine that they were staring at Jesus like, what in the world, are you kidding me? And I love this. One of them looked at him, Cleopas, and answered, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? And I love this. I love Jesus. He decides to mess with these guys, right? He looks at these guys and goes, what things? What things? I have no idea. Why don't you guys fill me in? What things are you talking about? And so these guys go on and they say to Jesus, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests, um, our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. Now, don't miss verse 21. Look at this. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things have happened. You see, it's in these verses that we really start to see and feel the hopelessness of these two men. They knew, like all the other Jewish people alive during Jesus' day, that in the Old Testament scriptures, their God, the God of Israel, had promised one day to send a Savior into the world. A Savior who would come and and free people from suffering and injustice and oppression. A Savior who would come and and restore sinful people back to a right relationship with God and ultimately give those people brand new lives. And these two guys are looking at Jesus saying to him, we thought he was the one. We thought he he was going to come and give us all that God had promised us. But three days ago, we saw him nailed to a cross. And man, it seems like all we were hoping for is now lost. Now, I want to stop here for a moment. I want to point out for us two wrong assumptions that these guys made concerning Jesus. These assumptions left these men feeling very lost and hopeless in life. And and these same assumptions, I think, leave a lot of people in our world today feeling hopeless and lost about life. The first wrong assumption was this. These guys assumed that saviors don't die. They assume the saviors don't die. I'm going to give these guys the benefit of the doubt and, uh, and just assume that they never saw movies like Braveheart, Saving Private Ryan, Gladiator, right? Because if they would have, they would have understood that the greatest stories of rescue, salvation, and freedom involve great men laying down their lives for the sake of others. You see, this is the exact salvation story that the death of Jesus tells us. If you're new to this church Jesus thing, let me tell you the story. I don't know if you realize this about yourself, um, but you're not perfect, right? 
And I don't think you want to come on the stage and argue with me about that. And the Bible calls imperfection sinfulness. The Bible says we're all sinful people, meaning that we've all done things that have offended God. All of us in the room have failed to live up to being the person, the people that God created us to be. We're sinners. We're ungodly, which means we're unlike God who is perfect. And the Bible tells us that as a result of being sinful people, our sin has literally separated us from God. There's nothing we can do on our own to have a relationship with him. And what that means, unfortunately, is that what we deserve from God as sinful people is to live hopeless lives, to die stuck in our sins, and to go into eternity to, to be separated from him in a, in a very real place called hell forever, suffering the punishment for sin and imperfection. Here's the really bad news. Nobody in this room could do anything about it. Like you can't come to church enough, can't follow enough rules, you can't be nice enough to enough people. But here's what's so beautiful about Jesus. Jesus has done enough for us. You see, Jesus, who is God, he came to this earth 2,000 years ago, wrapped himself in flesh, and he lived the perfect sinless life that you and I should have lived but couldn't. And at the end of his perfect life, Jesus went to a cross and he died in our place for our sins, taking the punishment from God that we deserved for being sinful people. You see, when you and I should have died and gone to hell, Jesus died and experienced hell so that we'd never have to know what that kind of suffering in hell is like. Now, unfortunately, in Luke 24, these two men missed this truth about Jesus. You see, instead of realizing that what they needed was a Savior who would suffer and die for them in their place, what they believed is that they needed a Savior who would show up, stand up, and fight for them. You see, during the time of Jesus, the nation of Israel, they were ruled by the Roman Empire, and they faced heavy oppression at the hands of the Romans. So when the Jewish people during Jesus' day opened up the New Testament and read about this Savior, their minds went to, dude, he's going to show up like a Chuck Norris, Bruce Lee, declare war, kill the Romans, free us from oppression, set up a brand new kingdom here on the earth, and then we're going to know the lives we've always wanted. So when Jesus died, these two guys weren't thinking, yes, we're saved. They were thinking, well, here we go again. Same old life. He's dead. He's gone. No hope. We've just got to keep living the same life we've been living. Now, the second wrong assumption these guys made was this. They made the assumption that dead people stay dead. Now, again, I don't want to beat these guys up too much um, because if we're all honest tonight, if somebody died on a Friday and we saw them walking around on a Sunday morning, we'd go assuming like we were the newest character in The Walking Dead, right? Like grab a shovel, a knife, something. That's not something you expect, right? Common sense, logic, even natural law tells us that when someone dies, they're supposed to stay dead. But look at me, look at me. These guys in Luke 24, along with the other followers and friends of Jesus, they should have expected the exact opposite. And here's why. Because time and time again during Jesus' life, he said to them in places like Luke 9, Luke 18, read it on your own. Hey, guys, there's coming a day. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be murdered. I'm going to die. But don't worry, three days later, I'm going to come back from the dead. Even though these guys should have expected Jesus to, to rise, when he died, their assumption was, dead people stay dead. And I'll prove it to you, right? Think about the scene with me again, and think about how insane this is. These two guys 
are standing in front of the resurrected Jesus, talking to him about how he's dead. Think about that. Well, Jesus, there were some ladies we know, they, they went to the tomb, and, and it was empty, and some angels were there. They said he had risen. Some friends of ours went to the tomb. They said it was empty as well. We really hate this Jesus. We thought he was the one. He's still dead. They're telling him this. And Jesus, I'm sure he's blown away, because if you keep reading Luke 24, he looks at these guys, and, and the Bible says he starts teaching. He starts taking them through the scriptures to show them the truth about the Savior who would come. This Savior who, according to the Old Testament, would come into the world and bear our iniquities as a man of suffering, a man of sorrow. And Jesus is pointing them to the Bible going, guys, guys, don't forget, don't forget, don't forget. The Savior, according to your Bibles, would come and die and raise from the dead. Yet still these guys miss it. Wow, we hope things would change. Dead people stay dead. Even though the tomb's empty, even though the angels have told us, even though... You're in front of us. We don't recognize you. This really stinks. I guess he's dead. Now, listen again. As ridiculous as this seems in Luke 24, what we have to understand is that these wrong assumptions about Jesus play out in the lives of people in our world all the time, every day. I mean, you know, like I know, that our world is full of people who, if they were honest with themselves, they would say they're desperate for new lives. They're desperate for hope. They're desperate for joy. They're desperate for change. Like, I'm sure if I pass the mic around the room tonight, you could all name people that you know personally who would say about themselves, man, I, I want joy. I, I want to be free from this addiction. I'm tired of my relationships falling apart. I want to feel like my life actually matters. I want to be able to look out of the, at the future and feel some sense of hope. And even though, listen, even though all the evidence surrounding the resurrection of Jesus points to its truth, and while all signs point to Jesus being the one that can offer people all the hope and change and joy they're so desperately looking for, too many people get out of bed every day and live lives like Jesus is still dead and in the grave. Like maybe that's you here tonight. Maybe you showed up. Maybe you're new to this. Maybe you walked in as a skeptic, right? Maybe somebody's just buying you free dinner here or after service, but you don't really want to be here. But you're listening to me talk about new life, and something inside of you is going, yes, 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 that's me. But the problem is you're looking to everything under the sun that this world has to offer, and it just can't deliver. And you haven't yet looked at Jesus who can but you're skeptical, and I get that, because let's be honest, talking about a guy coming back from the dead, to a lot of people, that seems far-fetched and hard to believe. So if that's you in the room tonight, here's what I want to do in the next few minutes. I want to point us back to Luke 24, in which we find some of the greatest historical and circumstantial evidence to support the fact that Jesus actually rose from the dead and can give you a new life. So let me share some of this with you. First off, in Luke 24, we find evidence of the resurrection and the witnesses of Jesus. You can read about the witnesses in verses 20 through 43. Jesus starts showing up and he starts appearing to people for the first time after he rises from the dead. And we know from the scriptures that after it was all said and done, Jesus spent about 40 days on the earth after he rose from the dead, that he appeared to over 500 people in bodily form again. Now, I say that to say this. 
We all have to understand that Christianity is not some belief system born out of some crazy man having some weird dream, some weird vision, and then conning people into believing a lie, right? Christianity instead is a belief system born out of the historical account of hundreds of witnesses who witnessed an event take place and then told a bunch of people about it. All these people, hundreds of them, saw Jesus live, saw him die, saw him raise from the dead. And can we just be honest? Like if we brought that story into a courtroom today, over 500 people saying the same thing about the same person, that would kind of make everything that they were saying seem true, wouldn't it? Um, another piece of evidence is the friends of Jesus. You can read about the friends in verses 36 through 53 of Luke 24. When Jesus um, kind of disappears from these two guys in Luke 24 and shows back up in Jerusalem, he shows back up to a group of his followers who are in hiding. These people, after Jesus was arrested, his friends, his disciples, they turned into some of the most cowardly people the world had ever known. I mean, They didn't want to die like they had just saw Jesus die, so they went and they started hiding out. Now, when Jesus shows up in Luke 24, and he says to them, I'm here, grab me some food, let's eat together, touch the wounds, it's really me, I'm alive again. What happens next is unbelievable. These cowardly people who feared for their lives become some of the most courageous people the world has ever known. They came out of hiding, went back into the world from which they had run, and many of them laid down their very lives for the sake of Jesus. Now, why in the world would a bunch of cowardly people do something so courageous as to give up their lives for him? Well, it's simple. They had an encounter in Luke 24 with Jesus Christ, who they saw dead on a Friday, and then he was standing in front of them very much alive. Um, Another piece of evidence that we see in Luke 24, there's a lot of mention of it, is the the tomb, the empty tomb of Jesus. I've been to that tomb in Israel, and good news, it's still empty today, right? There's just a sign on the door, he's not here, for he has risen. Now, I know that there are people who will argue about this, right? This piece of evidence. And they'll say that the tomb of Jesus, it's empty today for a few reasons. One, Um, There are people who will say that we've just been looking in the wrong tomb all these years. We haven't found Jesus' body because the tomb we're looking in, that's not the tomb he was buried in. But that's a weak argument, and here's why. Everybody knew where Jesus was buried. A rich, well-known man named Joseph of Arimathea gave his own tomb to Jesus for burial. The Romans then assigned guards to his tomb so that nobody would come messing with him. In Luke 24, we find some women and even some friends of Jesus going to visit the tomb and finding it empty. So here's the deal. Listen, if Jesus wasn't really alive, he was still dead, his body would have been easy to produce because everyone knew where he was buried. Now, there's other people who will say this, that the disciples, they actually went and stole the body of Jesus. That's why the tomb is empty. But again, that's another weak argument because we know from Luke 24, these guys, they feared for their lives. They were in hiding Why in the world would a bunch of men who didn't want to die show up at a tomb, pick a fight with Roman soldiers, and try to steal a body? Um, Another argument, people will say this, and this is the craziest one of all. Um, There there are people who will claim that, that the tomb of Jesus is empty because Jesus didn't really die. That they took him off of the cross on Friday, there was a little life left in him, and between Friday and Sunday he made a full recovery, and then he snuck out of the tomb. 
Now listen, even if you're the biggest skeptic in the room tonight, I think that you will agree with me in just a moment that this is a weak, foolish argument. And here's why. First off, because the Romans who, who executed Jesus were pros in crucifixion. It's what they did. They killed people all the time. And if a person, a, a criminal wasn't dying fast enough on a cross, you know what they'd do? They'd come by with a big club. They'd break that criminal's legs because a person died on a cross from suffocation. So they'd break legs so that that criminal couldn't push himself up any longer to take breaths. They didn't take people off of a cross unless they were fully dead. But the second reason it's weak is this, and and again, I think you'll agree with me. To believe that Jesus went through severe beatings, had his body literally shredded apart on Friday with an instrument called a cat of nine tails, a whip with pieces of, of glass, rock, and bone embedded in it, literally his body torn apart, then had nails driven through his wrist and his feet, put into a tomb with a little life left in him, and between Friday and Sunday with no food, no water, no medical care, again, made a full recovery, somehow moved the heavy stone in front of the mouth of the tomb with his nail-pierced hands, and then walked on nail-pierced feet for seven miles with these two dudes from Luke 24, from Jerusalem to Emmaus? Like, it takes more faith to believe that story than to simply believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Now, I'll give you a couple of other pieces of evidence if you're still like, James, I don't know, bro. I don't know if I can believe this. A couple of other pieces. These aren't mentioned in Luke 24, but I think they're worth mentioning. Um, Two other pieces of evidence of his resurrection, his friends and his enemies. His friends and his enemies. I'm sorry, his family and his enemies. Um, I don't know if you realize this. Jesus' own family worshipped him as God after his resurrection. Anybody in the room have a family member they'd like to worship as God? Anybody? Like, I think for some of us whose families are so jacked up, that'd be all the evidence we would need. He rose from the dead. I'm going to probably worship him now. But listen, Jesus' family, they worshiped him as God. Jesus has a half-brother that we know from the scriptures whose name is James. James was a skeptic the entire life of Jesus. Didn't believe he was the Savior that God promised. But after he saw his half-brother risen from the dead, James went, you know what, I think that's him. And he started a church in the city of Jerusalem and wrote one of the books of, of the New Testament entitled James. Not only that, but the enemies of Jesus, here's what's unreal. Some of Jesus' fiercest enemies went from hating him to loving him after they encountered, encountered him very much alive again. This was the Apostle Paul's story, right? Paul went from killing followers of Jesus to becoming a follower of Jesus, all because he had an experience with the resurrected Jesus. And you can read the story in Acts 9, right? He's on a road to Damascus, and Jesus shows up, knocks him off his horse, blinds him, and said, bro, I'm done with you killing my people. Like, that's my paraphrase. It's not really what it says, but, but that's, that's kind of what he says. And he says, Paul, I'm taking you. You're going to be my pe- one of my people now, and, and I'm going to use your life for whatever I want to use your life for. We're, we're done with this. Unbelievable. Why? He met the resurrected Jesus. Now, we could get into more evidence if we had time, because there is more, but all the evidence that I've given you and could give you tonight support the same conclusion. And the conclusion is this, that Jesus Christ, who is God, he is alive. 
that Jesus came to this earth and, and he did everything that he set out to do. He's the perfect, sinless son of God who died in your place and mine for our sins and then three days later rose from the dead to conquer sin, death, and hell on our behalf so that if we put our faith in him as God's savior and Lord, everything about us can be made new. Church, he's alive. He's alive. Now, because he's alive, and because the resurrection is true, here's what's amazing. It has huge implications for all of us sitting in this room. The resurrection means some amazing things for all of us, and I'm going to just give you two things tonight. What does the resurrection mean for you? Well, one, it means that if you know Jesus, death has been put to death. Death has been put to death. The Apostle Paul tells us this very thing in 1 Corinthians 15. Listen to this. He tells us that because of the resurrection of Jesus, that death is swallowed up in victory. He goes on, oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, all of us in the room know, you might not want to confess it or think about it, we all know we're going to die one day, right? Like you're not going to live here forever. What Paul's telling us though is this, is that even though you're going to die physically, you have no reason to fear death if you know Jesus. You see, Jesus came to this world to conquer death. He died for your sins, and then he rose from the grave to prove that he is, in fact, God, and he is, in fact, stronger than death. And you see, if you know Jesus as your Savior, here's what's so beautiful, that even though you die physically one day, you will go on living with the resurrected Jesus in eternity, forever, in his kingdom. I don't know about you, but that gives me a lot of hope as a broken, sinful man to know that because of what Jesus has done for me, when I close my eyes in death, I will open them in his presence. And one day when he comes back to this earth, I'm going to receive a brand new resurrected body, a body like he received at his resurrection, a body that will never suffer again, a body that will never shed a tear, a body that will never feel pain, a body that will never die again. And I'm going to go on, and if you know Jesus, you're going to go on living in that resurrected body with the resurrected Jesus for the rest of eternity in a kingdom in which life will work exactly how God has designed life to work. All things on that day will be made new. Now, the second thing this means for us, the resurrection, is this, is that life here on the earth can be made new. That life, your life, my life, because Jesus died and rose again, all of life can be made new. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible is 2 Corinthians 5.17, which says this. Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Think about that. You think about that for just a moment. If you are in Christ, you are new. You're new. You're a new creation. And he goes on to write, the old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. One of the reasons I, I love this verse so much is because of the picture it paints. I'm, I'm a visual person, and so this, this verse kind of brings some things to life for me, and, and we've done our best to try and capture this picture on the stage. And I'm going to get this out of the way so that we can kind of see this, but here's what I want you to just kind of imagine with me, all right? I want you to imagine that this scene here on the stage of this busted up, broken down, cracked, jacked up furniture represents that part of your life that you wish could be different. Whatever you thought about earlier when I said, what do you want to change in your life? I want you to just imagine that, again, this is a picture of that piece of you. 
And I want you to imagine that this scene over here of the new stuff, the new baggage, the new chair, the new mirror, the new books, that this represents for you the life you want, the life you long for. This represents what you wish life could be. Well, here's what Paul's telling us when he says that if we're in Christ, we're a new creation, the old is gone, the new has come. He's telling us that if we know Jesus, we don't have to get out of the bed and live here every day. Unfortunately, that's what so many people do, even people who know Jesus. They'll get out of the bed and just assume, I've got to keep living the same old life every single day. Wish things could be different. Wish things could change. And Paul's going, things can. Jesus died and rose from the dead so that the old you wouldn't just become a better version of you, right? Right? Like you get, Jesus doesn't want to just slap band-aids and and things like that on the old you. What he wants to do is rip the old you out of you and replace it with a brand new you. And here's the beautiful thing. Jesus proved that he has power to do just that through raising from the dead. Listen, I can assure you that because Jesus is more powerful than death, there's nothing in your life that he can't change. There's nothing in your life that he can't make new. Our God is in the business of bringing dead things back to life. Man, I hope that gives you great hope. I want to share a story with you tonight. Again, especially for those of you in the room who are thinking, James, that sounds awesome. I want to believe it, but does it really work? Well, there's a friend of mine in the church. His name is Brian. And we asked him to share his story for Easter tonight. And his story is a beautiful example of what God can do in the life of a person who surrenders to him. And I pray that his story gives you hope, and I pray if you're on the fence about this Jesus thing, that maybe his story will kick you off on the side of of becoming a new creation. So I want you to turn your attention toward the screens and check out the story. Everything was good as I was a baby as I hear. I was sport riding, you know, whatever. But when I got about three years old is when my dad got real bad into alcohol and drugs and shortly after that my mom got involved in that so pretty much and as far as I can remember from childhood to as a young adult you know I've pretty much been in a drug house you know I've been around nothing but adults you know junkies bad people you know what I mean and that's who I was influenced by I had actually went to Walmart and I stole some of those little finger bikes I got caught of course, they took him. They called my dad and everything. Well, my dad come got me. He was mad at me. Of course, your dad's going to be mad. So he sat me down. He's like, so you're going to tell me why you did that. And if I hear I don't know, I'm going to tear your butt up. So I said, well, I'm crying, you know, because I know what's coming. <laughs> so I was like, well, I guess because they did. And he hit me with his fist. And he knocked me over a bed. And he blacked my eye, knocked blood out of my eye, you know, stuff like that. I just wanted to be hard, you know what I mean? I didn't want nobody to soften me up because my dad was going to get on me if I did, you know what I mean, if I showed any kind of weakness. I always wanted to fight. You know, I didn't care about nobody. After that, I was 14. I started using meth. I did three and a half years in prison. That one, I mean, you would think that would be your low point. I got out wild again. A couple years after that, it was like 2010, my dad died. Well, even though I was... I hardened my heart, and we never really got along. I've always yearned for that. I want him to be my best friend, you know? And I've always wanted him to apologize for me, to me, for what he'd done. He never would. He never would. And I was just really bad. My mama was scared of me. 
I got a, I got arrested over here at Rugged Warehouse for shoplifting, possession of Schedule Four narcotics, and possession of marijuana. I actually got accepted into a drug court. I looked back at my life for once. I've never done that before. I looked back and seen where I come from, what I've done, who I am. I didn't like it. I graduated and I got out, and then it's like I'm free. I was afraid of getting high again. I didn't want to go back to that life. I did not want to go back to that life. I'm scared of it, you know. I'm scared of the person I am when I'm on it because I don't care about nobody. Some more, I don't care about myself, you know. I'm, I could, I could go back into it tomorrow. Within a week, I could kill myself because I was just tired of it, you know. It just you don't never know. That's what the drugs do to you, you know. The devil is truly in those drugs, and he definitely has a hand on you when you're doing them. You know, I was truly ready for a relationship with God. You know, I really wanted that definitely because. I look at it now that I'm in church, and it wasn't drug court that was keeping me straight. It was truly God working in my life to uh, keep me. He, he taught me how to say no, you know what I mean? He gave me the strength to say no. He gave me the road to take to, to success in this life, you know? The first day I walked into this church, man, it's like I walked into my own house. I was just comfortable. The people here, they don't, they're not judgmental. There's officers here that know me, that see me, and they're, you know, that kind of first, they was like, oh, Lord, no. I, I, you could just see it, you know, maybe they wasn't, maybe they wasn't, maybe it was just me just seeing them and thinking, oh, Lord, you know. <laughs> but, uh, you know, after a month or two, I actually had one of the officers come to me, and he shook my hand and said, you're really doing good, huh? God has blessed me beyond belief, man. It's like I don't feel like I deserve anything for what I've done to people, where I've been, the things, the things I've seen and participated in, I don't feel like I have deserve any blessings. I have a family now, I have a beautiful daughter, beautiful little stepson, beautiful wife. I don't want to lose that, you know? Truly, I don't want to lose that. And if I did, it would just be so bad. <laughs> and if I was to go get high, and it would be definitely gone, you know? Through God, I'm truly, I'm truly let free of all the bondage from the addiction, the, what I've done to people. It's just, it's amazing to see what he does for me. Me, you know, out of everybody. I'm, you know, you look me up on paper, <laughs> that guy, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Jesus came to this earth and he died for me, you know, and us, and you, and, <laughs> and I believe it. Now I have a beautiful wife, a beautiful family. We have a home, we have good jobs, um, bills are paid, you know, foods in our bellies foods in our cabinets for our kids, you know. Um, my mama is just so proud of me. It's, she's so proud of me, you know, and everybody tells me how much they're proud of me and everything, and it, that's the difference. You know, I didn't have that before. Why me? Why am I the guy that had to go through this? You know, once I got saved and I realized it, you know, truly it's, you know, I went through all this, but I'm alive, but yet I have a story I can share with people like me that's been through the same stuff that maybe I can help them. Uh, he gave me a tool that I can use, you know. And, um, and I really hope I can through this message, you know, through this story I'm sharing. I just want to invite you all around the room just to bow your heads and to close your eyes with me.
Man, if you're someone in the room who showed up tonight, maybe you weren't even expecting this, coming for this. But man, you sat through the last part of this service and you just know things have to change for me. I can't keep living my life as the same old person I've always been. That's you, man. I just want you to know God loves you in spite of you. He sent his own son, Jesus, to this earth as a demonstration of his love for you while you were still a sinner, the Bible says. Man, you don't have to clean yourself up. There's nothing about your life that you have to fix. God wants you to come to him just as you are, but he doesn't want to leave you the way you are. That's what's amazing about the love of God. He wants to change you and send your life in a new direction and give you joy and purpose that you've never known before. If you're a person in the room tonight who thinks about death, man, there's no hope in that for you. You fear death because you have no idea what's gonna happen to you. If you're, if you're one of those people, I just wanna tell you, man, everything can change for you tonight. And it starts with you saying yes to a relationship with Jesus. It starts with you putting your faith in him as your personal savior and Lord. And so if you've never done that before, if you've never said yes to Jesus, I wanna help you do that right now. It's really simple. Just know that, that the prayer I'm gonna lead you through, I'm not imparting anything to you. This is not a magical prayer. This is just you saying yes to Jesus. If you need to, to do that, say something like this to God. Say, God, tonight I say yes. I believe Jesus came to this earth and he died for my sins so that I could be forgiven and accepted by you so that I could have power in my life over all that's, that's burdening me and destroying me. And I believe that three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. I believe he conquered sin and death and hell for me so that I could be made into a new person and spend eternity with you. So God, tonight, I'm saying yes to Jesus as my savior. Listen, if, if you just prayed that, if you just said yes to Jesus for the first time in your life, will you just do me a favor? Heads are still bowed, eyes are still closed, but if you just said yes, would you just look up at me really quickly? Would you just look up? Just look at me. I just want to ask you to do something really, really simple for me in just a moment, all right? The band, they're going to come, they're going to lead us in a song. I've got a gift I want to give you, just some resources they're going to help you get started in your brand new relationship with Jesus. So in just a moment, in the back of the room, right by the door you walked in through, there's going to be a team of people standing there with those resources. And when we stand in a minute, I just want to ask you, slip out of your seat. Would you just walk back to that team of people? Just tell them, I said yes to Jesus tonight. And they're going to put those resources in your hands because we want to make sure that you leave with those, okay? So I'm going to invite you to do that in just a moment. Um, second part of tonight's invitation is this. Maybe you're here and you've said yes to a relationship with Jesus, but you've never made that decision public through baptism. We're baptizing tons of people this weekend as a symbol of, of dead people coming back to life through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so maybe you're someone here tonight, again, who's never been baptized, and you need to say yes to baptism. We have a baptismal on the front of our building. We baptized a bunch of people after last service. We're going to do it all weekend long. And if you want to be baptized Easter weekend, 
man, we want to help you take that step. And, and I know you're probably thinking, I didn't bring anything with me. I don't have clothes. That's fine. We have them for you. We wanted to take away all the excuses as to why you couldn't say yes to baptism. So we have clothes. We have undergarments. We have everything you need, towels, everything you need to make your relationship public through baptism tonight before you leave. So again, the invitation is this. If you need to say yes to baptism, do it tonight. Walk to the back of the room when we stand and sing in a moment and tell the team of people back there, I want to say yes to baptism and, uh, and we'll get you all you need to take part in that. Father God, I'm just praying that you'd move in power. God, for those people that are still sitting in their seats and haven't said yes yet, God, would you just work on their hearts. God, don't let any of us walk out of this room tonight as the same old people we've always been. God, we're trusting you and expecting you to move. God, we love you and we thank you for the way that you love us. God, we pray all this in the name of Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Amen. As the band comes, I want to invite you to stand. If you said yes to Jesus, if you need to say yes to baptism, slip out of your seat as the band leads us and go talk to that team in the back of the room.